Do you really know the world surrounding you? Do you sometimes feel that other worlds seem to exist beneath the surface of space, time, and reality? Can you picture in your head a situation where all these worlds crash down around you? Can you touch the other side? These are the tales of the fantastical, the macabre, and the supernatural. Boldly influenced in depth by the powers that were, the powers that are, and the powers that will be. Welcome to Dark Charm Presents. Season 2, Episode 1. Bad Romance, Gothic Style. By Luke Dorsch and Danny Atwell. Demure woman in her thirties sat down in a posh German restaurant on a cold and rainy day. Softly streaked dark hair was put up in several pins and was adorned with a pretty blue hat. Her eyes were like that of sapphire. As she gazed at the man who sat across the table from her, she moved like a lady of stature who had seen enough in life to know what to expect. Her breathless tone, soft but curt, was enough for the gentleman to hear and it was colored with angst. I agreed to join you for coffee, because you were so persistent. Charmingly persistent, to be sure, but I am afraid that I am simply not available. For your own peace and safety, I implore you to stay away from me, sir. I believe that I am cursed. The man, tall and lean in stature, twirled his mustache between his fingers, finally kept in mischievous. He smiled and said with English affected with the accent of a German noble. Beg your pardon, Fräulein, but it's not sir, it's doctor. Oh, you're a professional man. How nice. But to the point, I've had terrible luck in my romantic pursuits. So consistent with that that I fear I must be the one at fault. If I take a liking to a fellow... That seems enough to guarantee that he will turn out to be a beast. Or even worse, a, a magnet for the most horrible mortal fate. And since I am the only common element in each case, the only rational course is to conclude that I must be the cause. The man interrupted. One moment, Fräulein. It, it is all well and good, but uh, may I ask your name? She stammered as she extended her white-gloved hand in greeting. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I don't know what came over me. Elsa. Uh, my name is Elsa. He took her by the hand and squeezed gently. He didn't kiss her hand, as she was so accustomed to having done in these situations. Well, for all I, I'm Victor, and it's uh, quite all right. Now, uh, tell me about what happened. Why do you think you are cursed? She took her hand away from his grasp and placed it in her lap. Her ruby-red lips quivered a little as she spoke. <sighs> The first tragedy occurred with my very first love. I had become engaged to a count, one from the darker corners of our continent. He was everything an overly romantic young girl of 19 could want. He was handsome, dashing, rich. He was actually a member of the gentry. You said right. Well, the wedding had to be postponed. I fell prey to a mysterious and debilitating blood disorder. It was discovered that my beloved 
my suitor was actually Nosferatu, a vampire. Victor leaned back in his chair. In his amazement, he gasped. Wow, really? That is fascinating. Elsa didn't know if the doctor was being facetious or if he was genuinely intrigued. She continued anyways. My father, both my brothers, and our parish priest. They all died slaying that unholy thing. It was, it was absolutely dreadful. That's absolutely horrifying. You poor thing. Elsa started to get comfortable talking to Victor. Even though she hadn't known him for long, it was as if there was chemistry between them. In a way, it made Elsa intrigued with the man before her. She needed to keep his attention. That was just the beginning, Doctor. Years later, my next gentleman caller was so shy and differential at first. I, I thought because it might have been due to his job as a patent clerk. <laughs> well, well, that is a step down from account, of course. I began to hope that the previous incident had just been some sort of aberration. But with the full moon ablaze in the sky, he turned into a ravening beast. A werewolf. He spirited me off to do God knows what to me in the night. Shredded off my clothes. Proceeded to try and eat me. At least, I think he wanted to eat me. Escaping him was a daunting task, I can tell you. One to chill the marrow. Victor put his elbows to the table and his hands under his chin. He reminded Elsa of a schoolboy who was listening to a horror story. Whatever did you do, my dear? Well, I don't wish to alarm you, but uh, it took a lucky gouge with a silver knife to his... <clears throat> nether regions? And a bit of fire? <laughs> Brings a whole new meaning to the term friar crotch, does it not? <sighs> I was in my early thirties before I dared let romance take its course with me again. But if I weren't so lonely, I wouldn't have cared. But a woman wants what a woman wants. A gleam of intent flashed across Victor's face. It made Elsa tremble. Indeed they do. Elsa stared into his eyes, as if almost in a trance, but then shook her head. I'm sorry, I am spilling all these things to you. I must sound like a complete wreck. Victor leaned back into his chair. I may not be a counselor, but being a doctor does have its privileges and obligations. Uh, do continue, my dear. Well... Please, as a man of science, I'm very intrigued by this theory of yours. A couple of years ago... I became involved with a botanist, doubting, of course, that such an unadventurous profession could possibly lead to danger. But my new beau, Aubrey, was studying the exotic jungle flora of Brazil when a creature of the murky depths got him. He was dragged to the bottom of a horrid black lagoon. Only his bones came back to the surface after the creature spit them onto the shore. Well, you can never be too careful with predators. A waiter came to the table. Tag, was kann ich euch für Siebel kommen? Can I have some tea, please? The waiter turned towards Victor and switched to English. And you, sir? Victor gazed at the waiter. I will have a beer, please. Elsa smiled politely as the waiter walked away. She glanced back at him. A beer? This early in the morning? He smirked back at her with a knowing grin. A man knows what a man wants. 
A crack of thunder came from the distance as the rain started to get heavier. Oh, I hope the rain lets up sooner rather than later. Normally I love the rain, but I have to walk back to my hotel in it and that's when it becomes a hindrance. Victor put his hand on Elsa's. A knowing look comes over his face. Let's not worry about the rain. I have a worker that can pick us up by carriage and he can take you to your hotel. Now, uh, continue on with your story. You find this really fascinating, don't you? I do. Indeed, I do, Frau. Well, last year, I met Charles. He was a safe, scholarly type. Or again, so I thought. He died on our honeymoon. He, he joined an expedition to the land of the pharaohs. I begged him not to go into the Valley of the Kings that day, but he persisted without me. Charles opened a cursed sarcophagus, and well... Victor looked at her and asked with bated breath. Well? She didn't want to go into the gory details of his death, so she skimmed over it. Uh, that's when I began to realize that I was the one who was cursed. So now you must see... Every man I love is killed by something monstrous, or turns out to be a monster himself. And since I am the only common element in all of these cases, it is only rational to conclude that I am the cause. The waiter came back with a tea and beer. While Elsa doctored her cup of tea to her liking, Victor had already pulled the stout to his lips and took a long drink. Elsa wondered at what type of man would drink like that, but it showed a bold side to him, something dashing and dangerous. Maybe it was the quality that she found in men so irresistible, no matter what profession they had. Victor put his stein down on the table and leaned back in his chair. As for your curse, Elsa, I'm not worried. For one thing, I'm already engaged to another beautiful woman, and uh, I have no intention of pursuing you for myself. Elsa became confused. She thought desperately that this was the doctor trying to be with her. Wait a minute. Then, then why did you pursue me so vigorously? I'm not a tart for you to play with. No, no, my dear. I don't think you a whore. Uh, it's my friend that I hoped might be interested in. Oh. Uh, is he a doctor too? Um, no, but he's tall and handsome and much formidable to be afraid of any so-called curse. He lives in a castle in Bavaria, not far from here. Oh my. I know this is all of a sudden, but I implore you to at least meet with him before you reject him out of hand. I'll take you to him, uh, back to your hotel, of course, but come up to dinner tonight. I'll send a coach down to fetch you. Uh, my friend and I are both men of science, devoid of superstition. I promise you that no imagined curse will ever bring us harm. I don't know. I am intrigued, of course, but... Think about it, at least. And now, if, if you'll excuse me, I must get back to my work. I do hope to uh, see you up there tonight. Elsa and Victor finished their drinks and paid the tab. The enigmatic doctor walked out of the restaurant and pulled Elsa under the awning. 
Victor then whistled loudly as a carriage came up to them almost immediately. The man driving wore modest robes and a hood over his head. He was drenched. So he had to have been there, waiting for at least an hour. Victor opened the door of the coach and escorted Elsa inside. He climbed in swiftly. The driver looked around inside the carriage. Where to, doctor? You go over taking Frau Elsa here to hotel. Very good, sir. But sir, which one? Elsa forgot the name of the hotel, but she knew where it was she chimed in. Uh, it's down the road. Second block? Igor pulled the horses down the street in a torrential rain. Thunder cracked in the sky. Do you think the storm will let up? Uh, these things can continue throughout the night around here, who knows? Moments later, he pulled the handle and opened the door of the coach to Elsa's hotel. He exited the coach swiftly and took her hand to help her out. Well, my dear, would you come to meet him? Elsa thought long about it. Victor's charm was enough to lull her apprehension. I, uh... I think I will. Wonderful, wonderful. I will see you around six o'clock. Elsa walked away swiftly into the hotel to get out of the rain. Victor bounded back inside the coach. Igor turned around. Now where to, sir? Victor's demeanor had shifted from a hopeless romantic to a cold observer. A huge switch of his personality. The castle, and not a moment to waste. They headed towards the large gothic castle atop a hillside in the center of Bavaria. After a few minutes, Igor poked his head around into the cabbage. Do you think she'll come? I really hope she does. Or do you think she'll blow us off? I believe so. Despite her protestations and her crazy stories, I suspect she's too intelligent to really believe in curses or is that other supernatural claptrap. Vampires? Werewolves? Creatures from lagoons? Preposterous! Right. Absolutely preposterous. Some time later, after the doctor arrived in the castle, Victor worked in his laboratory when he began to hear the hard sounds of footsteps behind him. He turned around to see his friend Adam. Adam resembled a dead man brought back to life. It was put together with pieces of different body parts and stitches and sinew. Although he was grotesque, he had high intelligence. Dr. Frankenstein, when will your work be done? When will you complete the construction of my bride? Victor smiled and touched Adam's arm. He pulled off a sheet covering a lab table where a new project was being created. Patience, my son. It won't be long now. I just interviewed a perfect woman who was absolutely perfect for us apart. Well, <laughs> most of the parts anyway. Strapped to the metal slab was a semi-reassembled female cadaver, inconveniently lacking a head. A head that Elsa would be a perfect match for. I sure hope the storm continues for the night. Lightning is much more cost-effective than a battery. <laughs> the End You have been listening to episode 201 of Dark Charm Presents. 
In bad romance gothic style you heard Miguel Pedroza as the gatekeeper. Victor by yours truly, Daniel Atwell. Elsa by Emily McAnulty. The Waiter also by yours truly, Danny Atwell. Igor played by Nick Neno. And Adam played by Dan Mac McCloskey. Dark Charm Media 2021, all rights reserved. Part 2 of Luke Dorsch Night. This little ditty is called My Love. My love, let me begin this letter, this prelude to our first encounter, formally, as a declaration of my undying heart, and in the old-fashioned way, I love you. You do not know me, although you have seen me, smiled at me, placed coins in the palm of my hand. I know you, although not as well as I would like. I want to be there when your eyes flutter open in the morning, and you see me, and you smile. Surely this would be paradise enough. So I do declare myself to you now, with pen set to paper again. I love you. I have put off writing this for so long, although I have always wanted to. Although I have composed it many times in my head, I could just never find the right words until now. Shall I write about you? about me. I will start with you. I love your hair, long, flowing and brown, the way it shines in the light, the way it bounces when you walk, every strand like a pluck of a harp in my heart. The first time I saw you, I believed you to be a dancer, and I still believe you to have a dancer's body, your legs, your posture, your head up and back, breathtaking. It was your smile, however, that spoke to me before I ever heard you speak. You smile all the time, as if everything you see delights you. You smiled the first time you saw me, even wider than before. You smiled, and I was lost, like a small child in a great forest to never to find his way home again. I learned when I was younger that the eyes give too much away. Some in my profession adopt dark glasses or even use masks that cover the whole face. What good is a mask? My solution is that a full slayer of theatrical contact lenses purchased from a website for a little under $400 which cover the whole eye. They are dark gray, of course, and look like stone. They have made me more than $400, paid for themselves over and over. You may think, given my profession, that I must be poor, but you would be mistaken. Indeed, I fancy that you must be surprised by how much I have collected. My needs have been small, and my earnings always very well. Except when it rains. I hate it when it rains. When it rains, others, as perhaps as you have observed, my love, retreat to a hideaway under awnings or alcoves nearby. Or they put up umbrellas, or just simply run away. I remain where I am. Always, I simply wait, unmoving. 
It all adds to the conviction of the performance, although sometimes it's not my best. And it is a performance. It's as much as when I was a theatrical actor, a magician's assistant, even when I myself was a dancer. This is how I am so familiar with the bodies of dancers. Always I was aware of the audience as individuals. I have found this with all actors and all dancers, except the short-sighted ones for whom the audience is a blur. My eyesight is keen, even through the contact lenses. Did you see the man with the mustache in the third row? We would say. He is staring at Andrew with lustful glances. And Andrew would reply, Ah, yes. But the woman on the aisle, who looks like the German Chancellor, she is now fighting to stay awake. If one person falls asleep, you can lose the whole audience. So we would play the rest of the evening to a middle-aged woman who wished only to succumb to drowsiness. The second time I saw you, you stood near me. So close I could smell your shampoo. It smelled like flowers and fruit. You were talking to a young man from the college, I think, and you both stopped and looked at me. If you are walking through the park, you can tell nothing about me. My robes look like old marble, water-stained and time-worn and lichened. My skin can be granite. Until I move, I am stone and bronze, and I do not move if I don't want to. I simply stand. Some people wait in the park for much too long, even in the rain, to see what I will do. They are uncomfortable not knowing, only happy once they have assured themselves that I am natural and not artificial. People watch me in the square, but the eye is only attracted by motion. I have perfected the tiny movement, so tiny that the passer can scarcely tell if something is as he saw it or not. Yes. Too often people will not see what does not move. The eyes see it, but do not see it. They discount it. I am human-shaped, but I am not human. So in order to make them see me, to make them look at me, to stop their eyes from sliding off me and paying me no attention, I am forced to make the tiniest of motions to draw their eyes to me. Then and only then do they see me. But they do not always know what they have seen. It is the uncertainty that traps people, like a mouse in a glue trap. It is utterly satisfying. I remember when I actually admitted to myself that you had taken to watching me, and only me, on your way across the park. You paused. You admired me. You saw me move once for a child, and you told a woman with you, loud enough to be heard, that I might be a real statue. I take that as the highest possible compliment. I have many different styles of movement, of course. I can move like clockwork in a set of tiny jerks and stutters. I can move like a robot or an automaton. I can move like a statue coming to life after hundreds of years of being stone. I am writing about myself too much. <clears throat> I know that this is a letter of introduction as much as it is a love letter. I should write about you. Your smile. Your eyes are so green. You do not know the true color of my eyes, but I will tell you, they're blue. You like classical music, but you also have ABBA and Katy Perry on your iPod. You wear no perfume. Your underwear is, for the most part, faded and comfortable, 
although you have a single set of red lace brassiere and panties, which you wear for special occasions. I think of you as a code to be broken, or as a puzzle to be cracked, or a jigsaw puzzle to be put together. I walk through your life, and I stand motionless at the edge of my own. My gestures, statuesque and precise, are too often misinterpreted. I want you. I do not doubt this. You have a younger sister. She has a Facebook page and a Snapchat account. We talk sometimes on Messenger. All too often people assume that a medieval statue exists only in the 15th century. This is not so true. I have a room. I have a laptop. My computer is passworded. I practice safe computing. Your password is yours and your sister's name put together. That is not safe. Anyone could read your email, look at your photographs, reconstruct your interests from your web history and your likes. Someone who was interested and who cared could spend endless hours building up a complex schematic of your life, matching the people in the photographs to the names in the emails, for example. It would not be hard to reconstruct a life from a computer or from cell phone messages. It would be like filling in a crossword puzzle. Within my hearing, you have spoken many times of the beauty of this small town. How for you, to be standing inside the stained glass confection of the old church was like being imprisoned inside a kaleidoscope of jewels. It was like being in the heart of the sun. Also, you were concerned about your mother's illness. When you were an undergraduate, you worked as a cook, and your fingertips are covered with the scar marks of a thousand tiny knife cuts. I love you, and it is my love for you that drives me to know all about you. The more I know, the closer I am to you. You were to travel with a young man on a future excursion, mm -mm. but he mm -mm. broke your heart. You still went to spite him, and you still smiled. That trip was for you, not him. I close my eyes and I can see you smiling. I close my eyes and I can see you striding across the park in a clatter of pigeons. When you sleep, your eyelashes flutter. The way your cheek touches the pillow, the way you dream. I dream of dragons. When I was a small child in a foster home, they told me that there was a dragon beneath the old city. I pictured the wreathing black smoke beneath the buildings, inhabiting the cracks between the cellars. Insubstantial and yet always present. That is how I think of the dragon, and how I think of the past now. A black dragon made of smoke. When I perform, I have been eaten by the dragon and have become part of the past. I am, truly, 700 years old. Kings come and kings go. Armies arrive and are absorbed or return home again, leaving only damaged buildings, widows and bastard children behind them. But the statues remain, and the dragon of smoke and past. I say this, although the statue that I emulate is not from the town at all. It stands in front of a church in southern Italy, where it is believed to represent either the sister of John the Baptist, or a local lord who endowed the church to celebrate that he had not died of the plague, or the angel of death. I also imagined you perfectly pure, my love, pure as I am, yet one time, I found that the red lace panties were pushed to the bottom of your laundry hamper, and upon close examination, 
I was able to assure myself that you had, unquestionably, been unchaste or sexually active the previous evening. Only you know with who. For you did not talk of the incident in your letters home, or allude to it in your online journal. A small girl looked up at me once and turned to her mother and said, Why is she so unhappy? Obviously, the girl was referring to me as a statue. Why do you believe her to be unhappy? The little girl said, Why else would people make themselves into statues? Her mother smiled. Perhaps she is unhappy in love, she said. I was not unhappy in love. I was prepared to wait until everything was right. Something very different. There is time. There is always time. It is the gift I took from being a statue. One of the gifts, I should say. You have walked past me and looked at me and smiled, and you have walked past me other times and barely noticed me as anything other than an object. Truly, it is remarkable how little regard you or any human gives to something that remains completely motionless. You have woken in the night, gotten up, and walked to the little toilet, micturated, walked back to your bed, slept once more peacefully. You would not notice something perfectly still, would you? Something in the shadows. If I could, I would have made the paper for this letter for you out of my body. I thought about mixing in with the ink my blood or spittle, but no. There is such a thing as an overstatement, yet great loves demand great gestures, yes? I am unused to grand gestures. I am more practiced in the tiny gestures. I made a small boy scream once, simply by smiling at him when he had convinced himself that I was made of marble. It is the smallest of gestures that will never be forgotten. I love you. I want you. And I need you. I am yours just as you are mine. There. I have declared my love for you. Soon, I hope, you will know this for yourself. Then. We will never part. It will be time in a moment to turn around, put down the letter. I am with you, even now, in these old apartments with the old Iranian carpets on the walls. You have walked past me so many times, too many times. No more. I am here with you. I am here now, my love. When you put down this letter, when you turn and look across the old room, your eyes sweeping it with relief, or with joy even, or maybe with terror, then I will move. Move just a fraction, and finally you will see me. You've just listened to My Love. By Luke Dorsch. Thank you for listening to these two wonderful tales. Please help my friend as he is in a terrible bind. The information can be found on GoFundMe because he's about to lose his home and no one should deserve that, especially with younger children in the house. To do what you can. Thank you. All rights reserved from Dark Charm Media, 2021.